HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks so much for tuning in once again to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we have another jam-packed show for you. We're going to be on the line with Stephen Wood of Poverty Lane Orchards and Farm- Farnham Hill Ciders, talking about the new Arctic brand apples. And then in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by John Wilkes. Uh, He's another Heritage Radio Network host, host of The Whole Shebang, to talk a little bit about um, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles in agriculture. So hang tight for that. Before we jump in, I do want to give a little bit of an update on a recent farm report guest from episode 219, Purdue poultry farmer Craig Watts. Um, They just announced announced today that he is actually suing Purdue Farms. The complaint alleges that Purdue's decision to audit Watts Farm and place him under a performance improvement plan was taken in reprisal for protected activity under the Food Safety Modernization Act. So definitely um, more to come following up on on this story. Um, If you want to hear a little bit more from Craig and and his work and his uh, current relationship with Purdue, definitely check out Farm Report episode 219, where we talked with him at length about his work over the last 20 years as a contract grower for Purdue. This lawsuit is definitely um, a new a new space in uh, large-scale farming, so I look forward to seeing you know, where it ends up. But today we are talking uh, about some big changes as well in the apple industry, and I want to welcome Stephen to the show. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So we um, are going to be talking a little bit today about Arctic brand apples. So 
Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture just recently deregulated Arctic brand apples, um, which means that these apples can now be grown for commercial production and eventually sold in stores. Um, currently, there are no GMO apples in the marketplace, and, and there's not going to be any in the upcoming 2015 season. Um, but it is something that we can expect to be hearing a little bit more about over the course of the next year and potentially seeing on supermarket shelves in, in the in the near future. The kind of point of the Arctic apples is when you slice into them, they don't turn brown, um, which is great for large-scale food producers or folks who are kind of cutting apples in advance and serving them. I feel like moms across the country are familiar with kids not wanting to eat apples that turned brown. But I have to say I was a little surprised that this was the, the first use of GMO technology in the apple space. Stephen, is, is this a big problem in the industry? I mean, why do you think that of, of all the, the things to focus on in the, 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 the like breeding technology that this was the first, the first to come to market? Well, I should preface this by reminding you that this this is about as far away from our market as you can get and still be in the apple market. So, um, uh, but but that said, you know, fresh sliced stuff, the produce has been um, very fast growing segment of of the produce market. Um, I mean, I guess I don't perfectly get why people don't have their own knives, but but the, the fact is that between food service and salad bars and all the rest of that stuff, on the one hand, but even more the you know the pre the pre sliced packets of things of, of, of various bits of produce, whether it's mix or mescal mix or, or you know fruit slices or whatever, um, is is a huge market for for uh, for vegetables and fruit and obviously browning is an obstruction for um, marking apples that way and it's been dealt with until it's being dealt with right now it's been dealt with till now by the use of antioxidants I mean things that sort of be akin to putting um, lemon juice on a on the cut surface of an apple um, but I can see the reason I mean I can see the incentive to come up with a non-browning apple variety for the slice market. Um, and just as you said, you know, the kid who won't finish his apple because it's turning brown, I guess if, if you want the kid to finish his apple, maybe if it doesn't turn brown, it, she will. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because, like, the apple, to me, seems like it comes ready-made and kind of like the perfect delivery vehicle, which is the apple itself. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'm... I'm too simple or something. I don't know. No, I mean, I'm just, uh, look, I, I agree with you, but there's a market, right? We're talking about a market for apples, for a whole lot of apples. Um, so, I mean, if you're interested in keeping apple, you know, apple farms going across the country, I mean, small and large, of course. I mean, I, I I know that you know the, the guy with the farm stand down the road is not going to start planting this stuff. But but in in the big picture, everything that happens in the apple industry affects everybody, small and large. I mean, pretty much everybody who's in um, 
who grows produce is, whether he wants to admit it or not, in is affected by global markets. And so the opening of a market to for apples is can be argued to be good for apple ground for orchard um, you know orcharding corners of the country it can be argued to be good in the end for small growers who would never bring planting such a thing I'm, I'm not saying I actually hold this view I'm just I'm, but but I'm not it's a I'm not sure exactly what I think of this, but I certainly can see the incentives and the argument for it. Well, um, I would say that was like yeah. one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, bring you on to kind of help us think through um, kind of what this means and how we should be thinking about it. I mean, obviously your work um, through the the orchard, but also the cider making, you know, you've participated in a lot of different spaces in the apple industry from, you know, growing, you know, fruit to eat and to ship to places around the country, growing for the juice market, producing cider. Um, and, and I think like that's one of the things that um, to me is always so amazing when you start kind of peeling back the layers of, of any kind of, you know, simple piece of fruit um, that there's a whole industry and a whole different, um, you know, so many different kind of like players and markets and spaces that um, that open up all of a sudden. And so when there's a shift, I think it's interesting that you said, like, these changes are going to affect everyone. And I'm wondering, is there is there something we can compare this, um, the intro, the introduction of GMO technology to in, in the Apple industry history, where there was another kind of big tech shift that's happened recently? I don't know about tech shift. I mean... It's a tricky. This question gets this discussion gets very broad, very briskly. I think, but but uh, meaning to say, the the broad question of the extent to which humans manipulate um, the right the environment, the, the the world we live in, and and where where it's appropriate for us to manipulate and where not. Yeah, you, you you almost can't avoid stumbling into that ground almost immediately. But but. Um, Apple's well. Here's an ex- here's a bit of an example. Um, th- there's been a lot of effort to to breed by conventional breeding, that is not messing with DNA, but by but certainly still manipulating manipulating the genetic traits of of, of apples just by conventional breeding, um, which we, nobody's objected to, as far as I can tell, um, to to uh, uh, produce. Disease-resistant varieties of apples, and a whole lot of organic growers have, have embraced those disease-resistant, particularly scab-resistant. Scab, Venturia inicralis is, is uh, probably still the most uh, the most destructive organism to apples in the world. It's certainly the most destructive fungus. So you know, having an apple variety that's resistant to scab, you know, looks like a really cool thing. Um, and you know, one of the problems was most of the varieties they came up with originally. By, uh, this is I'm talking about decades of work, but, but the, most of the varieties they came up with originally had the downside of not being very damn good to eat, which was kind of a problem. <laughs> but uh, but some of them were. Uh, but it, the, the problem to me and a lot of others uh, uh, with all of this is not that it's a bad thing to try to breed disease disease resistance into an apple. 
But if you think of the of the amount of funding and sort of enthusiasm for research, disease for plant pathology, applied research in plant pathology to be to be finite, which it is in this country, um, and you suddenly, instead of trying to understand the actual organism, and meaning the actual fungus, and trying to you know get a more and more refined understanding of the organism and its host and all the rest of the things that affect its growth and all of that, and the ways of controlling it, which indeed will include uh, you know chemicals and all kinds of other things, but the various mechanical and other ways of, of keeping it from carrying away apple crops, if you suddenly decide that you can do an end run around that, that suddenly gets wicked sexy. That's what's happened with bio, with all the sort of um, um, biotech plant research. Is that it's taken the place of a lot of applied research, which was ultimately aimed at and remains aimed at actually understanding the world we live in instead of trying to manipulate it to make it easier for us to live in it. That is the thing that bugs me about the whole biotech, is that we don't understand enough about what we already have to be putting all this energy into making something that makes it not matter what we already have. I don't know if that argument makes any sense to you at all. But no, that's no, I think it and, does. And so, the, yeah. and so the genetic, to me, the, the GMO thing is just the next step in that. I can't find a food safety argument against GMO stuff. I can't buy into the argument. I haven't, you know, I mean, God, I, 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 I work with plants every day. I'm not worried about the extent to which GMOs of any description are going to reduce the sort of gene pool or, 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 you know, make it, I mean, I mean reduce, reduce uh, species diversity or whatever. I mean, I think, I think, you know, my nature is a little bit too potent for that. Um, and I'm, of all the things I'd worry about putting in my mouth, I mean, a, a, a genetically modified apple so that it doesn't, you know, I mean, modified so it doesn't brown. I may not like the apple, but I'm not going to worry too much about whether that's bad for me. Right. Um, well, you know, I, so the the question is broader. The question is, is this a good, I, I, to me, it's a question of whether this is a good place for humans to put their energies and efforts and money. And I think for 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 me also when you are um, so focused on the aesthetic appearance of the apple or a particular shape, or size, or, you know, I feel like from a culinary standpoint, you know, you're, we're also kind of giving up a lot for something that to look a certain way. Um, in, in, if we're not focused on growing food that tastes delicious, there's something like, it seems like we've taken a wrong turn there too. Well, Aaron, we have taken a wrong turn, but we took it. I mean, Look, I, I mean, our, our whole shtick here, I mean, we, you know, we make these, with these, I hope some people think they're delicious ciders based on all these apples that we grow, and we grow them entirely for, you know, the bittersweet apples, blah, blah, blah. We grow them entirely for what they are or not the way they look, and we do the same, you know, we got, we've, got, we've got this niche market for various heirloom varieties, and they, the same thing, you know, our pitch is the same thing, you know, don't, I don't, don't look at the cover. 
I'll tell you what, though, if there were insect stings on those apples when we were trying to sell them, I'm not talking about the cider apples, I'm talking about the stuff that goes, I don't know, you say where, Grace's Market, Dean DeLuca, wherever, in your city, I mean, right. what, uh, whatever, the places that, that, you know, where everybody talks about not caring how the fruit looks. Even the, even the farmer's markets, you know, people are not going to pick up an apple that's got a wormhole in it. They just aren't. And, um, and, you know, so we can lament the passage of a day when people had more sense about this sort of stuff. But to pretend that we are not all complicit in this is just a lie, you know? Um, and maybe, yeah, sure, fair enough. I, too, will cut the bad bits out of something in order to be able to cook with it and do so happily and proudly. But as a general rule, we don't do that. And, you know, I mean, if I've got to choose between between an apple with a wormhole and one with none, you know which one I'm going to pick up, right? Sure, it, sure. So, all, I mean, so I can't all, have it all? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> like, yeah. I can't have it all? I can't I mean, have the beautiful, delicious, perfect, you know, like... right. I mean, look at all the depictions in the 19th. I mean, ever since the, they made the mistake of of, of, of of figuring out that they were deciding that the apple was the thing in the Garden of Eden instead of a pomegranate or whatever it actually was, you know, every 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 rendition of that, artistic rendition of that, has shown an apple that barely exists in the in the world. You know, <laughs> well, they do now on the on the, uh, you know even on Whole Foods shelves, any market's got the per- perfect vertical display of identical-sized fruit. I mean, that, and in fact, that's the other thing. You know, there's a reason that, I mean, we we may stop our, our line of, of specialty fruit, because one of the things about the stuff that we sell to these specialty markets, including in New York, is that they're, 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 the sizes are, are, are vary a lot. They do not fit into the, the current market, uh, 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 a produce department, including in the funkiest one. And even if you go to farmers' markets, so quite often you'll find trays of stacked fruit, of meaning they're packing out the fruit by size because that's what people want to see. Because it's a lot easier if you're running a produce department, if you've got a nice vertical display that just the person, nobody looking at that display, they know what'll happen if they pull the apple they really want, which is five ranks down, <laughs> which is that they're going to have an embarrassing tumble. That is what the market demands now. And the market isn't just the evil produce buyers. It's right down to us. And so our pretense that we are not complicit in this, as I say, is wrong. So there, there is the context, for me, the context of all the stuff about cosmetic marketing and everything else. You know, people don't, if people won't, won't buy brown apples, they say they'll buy brown apples, but they won't buy brown apples. And somebody breeds roundness out, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to object to this except on that other argument, which is that we should be paying more attention to more important things. I think it's fatuous. I don't think it's evil. I think it's stupid. I don't know if that, again, I don't know if this makes sense. What? I mean, look, humans is a force of nature. Um, I, I mean, this, this, I've got total, uh, I mean, amateur in this, but Jared, Jared Diamond's, uh, you know, big book, the Guns, Germs, and Steel mm-hmm. book, there's a beautiful example of, of humans as a force of nature, which is grasses, grasses that give us grains. And not, of, not just of nature, but of evolution. 
you know, real mess, really messing with the genes. And it, it, it is that the, the, to be a successful grass with, with, you know, with seeds that formed and whatever, the best thing to do is to, was to lie down once the, once the seeds are ripe and ready to germinate or what, ready to go into the ground or whatever. So the successful, the successful um, members of a, of, a, of a species all lay down. And the unsuccessful poor buggers are the ones who didn't bend at the waist and, you know, stood there blowing in the breeze. Until proto-human or human or knuckle-dragger or whatever you want to call them comes along, notices that the, the grains are good to eat, picks the grains of the ones that are still standing up, maybe defecates a few of them or maybe even keeps a few to stick in the ground. And, you know, in really no time in the planet history, um... All of a sudden, the ones that lay down ain't ain't surviving any longer, and the ones that stand up have been genetically safe, have been evolutionarily selected by the knuckle-dragger. We have been doing this forever. We've been doing this inadvertently and advertently. We think we find things that are delicious to eat. We find ways of propagating them on. You know, we've been finding ways of breeding the things that we like. About plants, animals, the whole shebang. Again, my I'm not. I do think we try to manipulate our world way too much, but I don't think I I can't draw the ethical or pragmatical line at messing with a gene to make an apple that doesn't turn brown. I'm I'm not going to plant it, but I can't I can't get all jacked up about it either. <laughs> Well, so it was, you know, it is interesting, you know, in the, you know, they're, they're clear to say that, you know, the Arctic apples do not include, you know, genes from another species, but use apple to apple technology to silence or, or turn off the, the genes in brownie. And, and it was interesting because you had sent me the kind of statement from the U.S. Apple Association, um, you know, where they, they, they kind of tread a very like, you know, midline space. They're like U.S. Apple supports consumer choice in apples and products they select. And you know, they're, right. they're, they're clear to note that like it's going to be several years before these become available, but also that consumer demand will ultimately determine the future of GMO apples in the marketplace. And I'm wondering, um, you know, because we see the GMO conversation kind of happening and not happening in, in different spaces. I mean, obviously, if you're a soy producer um, or a corn producer, or you know, to a lesser extent, a wheat producer. Right. As consumers, we have a real unawareness, I think, in general about where we're consuming GMOs. But when we look at fruit and vegetable production, it's kind of uncharted territory, too. So, is there some reason that, like, we do you anticipate, like, we as consumers are going to care more about our apples being GMO than we care about, you know, our soy or corn being GMO? Like, do you feel like people are going to notice? You, you are so asking the wrong guy that question. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, anyway, my, you're talking about my predicting of uh, the, the, the behavior of markets and, and <laughs> I mean, I have no clue. I have no idea. I, I, I mean, I, I, I do know that the people who've developed this, these varieties have no qualms about, um, or at least say they have no qualms, about this being smeared all over the front of packages. They don't, they're not worried. They're not trying to, I mean, transparency is not an issue for them. 
The issue for them is that, that their apples are turning brown. Right. You know, and so, so you know, I mean, they're not, they, they might not like, you know, GMO, you know, genetically modified apple in this packaging three-inch letters or something, but they're not, they've shown no, no inclination to make this some sort of hugger-mugger sneak or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have any of, I mean, the, the grain things are pretty tricky, and you know nothing in what I nothing in what I've said is approves the I, I'm, not, I'm not expressing approval for the behavior of, of you know the company that makes the chemical that Roundup Ready corn is <laughs> is developed to um, deal with. I mean, it's just I, I, look. There's been some very bad, I think, bad behavior by the big companies trying to protect their patents and whatever. And there have been a lot of innocent growers who have got their Fields sort of overseeded by by wind or whatever, who've been in effect attacked by the companies trying to preserve their patents. That's not just silly. That's that is bordering on evil, and they should bloody well not be able to do that. I don't see anything like that in the apple in this apple field. You know, you can't. I mean, your your grafting knife doesn't blow across the road and suddenly graft a variety to your neighbor's field. Yeah, I might say we might want to you know? take a time out here just to clarify for that, sure. that for people that like you're not going to see a genetic drift of apples because you're not, you know, tossing seeds in the ground to plant apples. So maybe if you can. Oh, yeah. Just give I'll, a quick. I'll give you, a, yeah. you, want, you want a quick primer on that? Yes. Yes. OK, so if you take um, um, 5000 Macintosh trees, a, a seeds from one of my Macintosh trees and plant them, you will get 5,000 different varieties. For the reason that apples, kind of like us, are extreme heterozygotes. We, we, we take our genetic information when we are sexually propagated. We take our genetic information from two streams. I mean, I, that's, that's as complicated as I'm going to make this at the moment. But we, 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 can't, we can't just... You can't just um, you know, go have a nice time with your husband and then give birth to a child that's identical to one or the other of you in nine months' time. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way for an apple either. For for apple growers or breeders, the happy fact is that the genetic information is carried truly in the wood, which in effect, so using grafting or budding, grafting, Woody, um, the vegetative, not sexual, but vegetative propagation is a way of keeping all the genetic traits of the parent in the offspring. The offspring is identical to the parent. So if I cut wood from a bunch of trees and go halfway around the world and graft them to different, very, very different varieties of apple, of malus, beyond the point of that graft, the, the, the tree will be genetically identical, not just similar, but identical to the thing I took the wood from. So that's the way apple varieties and pear varieties and other palm fruit varieties are propagated. You can't do it from seed. You can grow a tree, but you can't grow mommy. So the point is that when somebody's... The, the thing that these people are, in effect, um, patenting is the wood. You can't have the tree. You can't buy the tree from the nursery. You're not allowed to, without paying a royalty, go 
and or you won't be allowed once the stuff is out. You won't be allowed to go just graft your own without paying some sort of a royalty for the variety. Um, but it's got nothing to do with seeds. It's got nothing to do with thing you know with wind and pollen and bees or any of the rest of that. That's very important to the propagation of the species, but has nothing to do with the propagation of the variety. Does that make sense? No, I think that that, that definitely makes sense. I think it's also just good to kind of clarify for folks because I think that the conversation, obviously, in you know, as you said at the top of the show, when we're talking about, you know, GMO technology, it's just... It, it's big and it, it gets into a lot of weird spaces really quickly. And I, I think that's like one of the things that I find so challenging. Um, and we've talked about before, like there is a desire amongst consumers. I have a desire to have, a, you know, a buying guide. I'm like somebody kind of just like, you know, here are my values. How do I make decisions? Um, and I want it to be black and white and super clear. And even when we're looking at the same technology applied to, you know, a different product, it's a different conversation. Um, it's just like, it feels like yeah. a lot to be on top of on some level. Well, it, it, is, it is, Aaron, and this is, I mean, the big problem is that people, I mean, I, I'm, I'm susceptible to this as well, but what you just said, you want it to be black and white. We want things to be simpler than they are. We want the answers to our dilemmas in the modern world to be be clearer than they are. You know, the world is just more complicated than we wish it was. I mean, you want the decisions to be black and white? Yeah, I want world peace. We're not going to have either of those right now, right? They're not, things are not that clear. They're just not that simple. And there is no buying guide. I mean, I talked to you a few days ago about, about trying to buy fish and trying to get delicious fish, but, you know, somehow not rape the ocean and or you know just start destroying the species or whatever um you know i mean so what does green and orange and red mean at the fi- I, I you know you don't even know what you're doing most of the time and so there's some subjective judgment being made by somebody about everything you know we've talked about you know organic produce versus conventional i mean i don't think that's a, a, a good guide either the more you delve into what sorts of practices some organic production entails. And, I, I, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it's not an indictment of organic, but you just, there's no clear guide. And the, the best guide, I think, is to just, I mean, you folks are kind of on this. The, 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 the local, the local war thing, the one thing that it does have is some element of know your grower if you can. Now, that is a huge luxury. We have to admit that it's a huge luxury. You know, not not that many people can live where I live and buy their other groceries from a guy they know who grew it. Not many people live where you live and can go down to whatever Union Square or whichever place you choose and go see the same person every week. Most people are not in that lucky situation. But the closer you can get to knowing about you know, about where it came from and who it came from and who grew it. And the closer you can get to making not not a judgment about what method of production he used or what chemicals he might have used or what, you know, what sort of irrigation she might have engaged in, just making something resembling a character judgment on the person who grew this stuff 
or the entity that grew this stuff um, is really almost the best we can do right now. I mean, Del Monte is one of the most progressive environmental growers in the country. Go figure. But what I just said, by my judgment, is true. They have got really brilliant entomologists and pathologists working for them. They're very good IPM growers at Del Monte. Huh, how about that? Cans of peas. You know, that's a, it's all, it's, it's just, it's, we, we can't know. We can just kind of do the best we can. But, boy, there is no place for self-righteousness. Well, and I there's think, no I, yeah. place for competence. There's no place for certainty. There's no place for, you know, any kind of, any kind of declaration of, of absolute certainty. Um, it's, it, it, this is hard. I think um, I, I think that's like a great place to to shift gears. I, I the, like one of the things I, I say to folks um, often um, when when dealing with like you know different things that are challenging in all walks of life is like you know why this feels hard because it's a hard <laughs> thing. You know, it's not it's not it's not like you or some failure on your part or you're not good enough. You're like it's hard because it's a hard thing, and like you know what? That's just that's just the shakes of it. Um, well, I want to. Um, I have you for a couple more minutes here. I want to just get your take um, before we bring John on in the second half of the show um, about these unmanned aerial vehicles or, or drones. And I'm wondering just in your, from, from where you sit, have you been hearing much about, uh, the use of drones in, in kind of orchard productions or in the apple industry or in folks who grow in your area? Is that a thing that's kind of percolating out there or not quite yet? (laughs) Drones to carry GMO apples to market, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, no, I mean people are using them for various things, for sort of surveying their farms or whatever. Um, I mean, I I haven't heard a lot of apple apple guys using them for the sort of uh, analysis of of fields that the that the big guy, big you know the, the the big crop people, the big acreage people are, are, are doing. I mean, but I think they. They certainly show a great deal of promise. I mean, to the extent that that um, the ability to uh, detect uh, whether it's a nutrient deficiency or a you know the attack of an insect or an infestation by a bacterium or something. Um, I mean, we integrated pest management depends pretty much on the farmer's feet on the ground or, the, or somebody's feet on the ground looking, always looking at what's, at, at what's going on out there. Um, and you could argue, or I argue, will argue, that, that good growing depends very much on that, that, that regardless of what approach people are taking to you know, production, that um, attention, constant attention, is critical to a good job. Well, to the extent that drones um, got promise, or at least suggest the prospect uh, or the, the possibility of, um, again, a more regular attention, uh, there, I, I, mean, I think you know we, we will see them used more and more in in, uh, in in apple orchards. But and you know the truth is. They may be being used heavily in in places. I, it would be interesting to talk to 
Actually, I'm going to now talk to some colleagues in Michigan and, and Washington and, and to see whether anybody's actually really actively using them. The guys I know who've got them right now, you know, they sort of show you, they, sort of, they want to show you how, <laughs> you know, how they're using these to monitor their orchards, but basically they do look like a kid in a vacant lot with one of those airplanes. <laughs> you know, they, must, they look a lot like toys still <laughs> in the hands of the guys I know who have them. <laughs> toys, toys that can take really nice pictures of your house or whatever. Sure. Well, I, who, think I think they show a great deal of promise for for for, for uh, monitoring, and um, um, I don't know about for delivery of, of you know. <laughs> no, you're not not sure about the Amazon delivery system yet. Well, Steve, thank you so much for um, sharing some of your thoughts, and I definitely look forward to having you back on the farm report soon um, and to having more conversations around some of these um, complex topics. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today. Thank you, Erin. It was fun. For folks who want to learn a little bit more about uh, Stephen and his work, definitely check out their website, povertylaneorchards.com. If you're lucky enough to live uh, in a place where fine ciders are sold, definitely check out the Farnham Hill ciders. They are delicious and incredibly diverse. There's a little um, something for everyone, no matter what your beverage kind of tastes are. So definitely recommend that. We're going to take a quick station break. And when we come back, we'll have John Wilkes on the line. And we'll be talking a little bit more about UAVs um, awaiting takeoff in U.S. agriculture. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. 
For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report. And in the second half of the show, we are joined on the line by John Wilkes to talk about a recent article that he had published in The Farmer's Guardian um, entitled UAVs, Awaiting Takeoff in U.S. Agriculture. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Always, always. And I will recommend folks uh, check out John does have a new show on Heritage Radio Network called The Whole Shebang. So you can definitely hear more from him by, by finding that on our website. So unmanned aerial systems, um, kind of looking at the agriculture sector, engaging with the the drone uh, usage, the drone conversation. John, can you kind of like take us through, you know, the the nuts and bolts of what's happening and and how people are thinking about it? Yeah, okay. Well, things have moved apace. It's one of these biggest twists of fate and irony. My article was published on Friday after sitting on my editor's desk for a little while. All of a sudden, lo and behold, on Sunday, the FAA, the, the, uh, the, the federal aerial people, came up with some rules. And it was, uh, but the situation here is that, as it stands currently, you aren't allowed to use a UAV commercially. So that can be on a farm, that can be looking for shale gas or oil or anything. You can't do it unless you obtain a special certification. It's a Section 333, which necessitates you basically having a pilot if you're flying the thing you've got to have almost you've got to have a pilot's license and you need a spotter someone that can kind of um keep an eye on what you're doing you've got to keep below 400 feet you've got to remain within half a mile of the pilot and in visual line of sight the whole time the thing can't weigh 25 and more than 55 pounds and you can't fly within five miles of an airport and they can't go up for more than 30 minutes at a time so it's there's kind of been some very restrictive um, rules and regs attached to the whole thing, which is stifling uh, a potentially huge industry. I attended a, a, a conference here in D.C. back in November, the uh, UAS Commercialization Industry Conference, and it was fascinating. I, I, I went with the agricultural angle. I've written the article in relation to agriculture, which uh, Steve, Steve was uh, saying uh, you know, it wouldn't work with apples, but uh, it, it is working or potentially would work out in the in the major cropping situation. So I rolled up, and it, uh, I was initially going to write about the agricultural side, which I have done, but also the bigger picture of the organizations and the various industries represented there. Um, a lot of frustration in that it, it is potentially, this is going to be a, a multi, multi-billion dollar industry both in terms of the software that's been written for these um, agricultural drones to be able to interpret data. And, uh, you know, the actual machines, once it becomes legalized and they can be flown legally, then there will be more people jumping in and developing the technology, improving battery life. So it was a, there was a host of people there, and uh, the overall sense was they want some rules to try and take this forward. There were some exemptions, some 333 exemptions that were issued a little while back, but that was for the film industry because, of course, for them it's a huge, would be a huge benefit, save costs on set. They managed to obtain some, you know, to get some exemptions. But the farming side of it kind of um, was, they're champing at the bit to get going. Um, The 
The UAV, the, the, the drone, is used potentially to look at your crop. They can inspect your crop using they use a, a infrared technology, which basically means you can look at the plant, the leaf structure of your, of your crop. These things uh, fly on a designated pattern up and down. They take the imaging, which is then recovered. It is then processed through software, and it gives you a very accurate profile of what's happening on your field, on, on, on the actual crop itself. This data can then be turned into a usable format, which will work with the little brains that sit on your, your crop sprayer or on your fertilizer applicator, so that as you're traveling along the field, it, you know where you need to put more, you need to put less, and it's really potentially a huge cost saver and going to take the American major cropping industry um, to a new place. They're trying to keep up with the technology um, that's already being used in their, in, with their competition in, uh, in Brazil, in, in South America, in, in the UK, and in Europe. Um, this technology has been embraced in Australia as well. It's been embraced on their large, large-scale arable operations. It's giving them the edge commercially. It's giving the farmers there a commercial edge. Uh, as you may have read the article, I, the, uh, there is a, a UAV-friendly sky statistic, and Brazil gets a 5.5, Australia 4.5, we get a 3.5 in the UK, and the U.S. doesn't even rank currently because of the uh, the non non usage so it, it's a big big industry and so on sunday the uh, faa released what is basically a consultation document which aims to look at the industry and try to make it workable because i suspect they're coming under a huge amount of pressure from various bodies the oil industry the film industry the municipal services, the fire and the police will want to use these things as well as uh, um, farmers. So they've come out with some proposals which are being put to consultation. But it's going to be at least 18 months. I was speaking to some of my contacts in the drone world out sort of California way uh, as to how they greeted what's going to go on. And they said, yeah, it's, it's, it's all good and well, but it's going to be at least 18 months, two years possibly before there's any anything uh, tangible legislation-wise. So I don't know if that kind of sets the scene a little bit. For yeah, where no, we definitely. Are yeah, and I think like I think Steve was saying he didn't think the drones would work for Apple delivery, but for observation for sure. And I do want to say that this kind of aerial view, you know, technology taking a look at your crops from above is something that is, I'm, I'm under the impression, is something that has been happening for quite some time through satellite imaging, um, for for large scale producers, so I mean the the idea that you can ascertain useful information in your production by looking at things from above, I think, totally makes sense, and it'll be interesting to kind of um, follow follow the the progress here in the U.S. and and I I do have to chuckle at Steve's kind of characterization of you know farmers you know, looking like a, the 12-year-old kid in the parking yeah. lot, you know, flying their airplane yeah, around. But it's a serious deal, though. Um, uh, there is um, landmark services. That basically, they are up in Wisconsin, and they cover, they cover like, nearly, nearly a million acres 
of uh, soya and wheat up there. And they're using it. They've got 30 agronomists on the ground, and they're using the technology, have done for a couple of years. Um, they, Because of the vagaries of the law, they've not been using it um, uh, to sort of... They're not charging the farmer for it. It's just for them to make their life somewhat easier. But they, they certainly, even just using it for visual appraisal without the kind of the, the infrared technology and some of the more uh, clever gizmos and gadgets which you can attach to these things, just as a purely visual appraisal, you can bring these things down to within a, a foot of the ground so you can ascertain weed varieties, um, you know, across a field without having to walk the field. Um, and then you can make decisions on, obviously, herbicides that are applicable. Um, I did one of the biggest, um, sort of the first guy to really do it is this guy, Robert Blair, who's out in Idaho. And in 2004, he just took a light aircraft over his land. He flew over his land. A friend took him for a ride. And he had this light bulb moment that it kind of just made sense, you know, seeing his crops in real time. He then the next day went and bought a, one of the very earliest drones and um, basically then worked on the various uh, cameras, the NIR, the, the NIR imagery to open it all up. Because precision agriculture is, is a big thing, uh, you know, precision agriculture. That is where the bulk of the food for this country is grown, out on the flatlands. It, it's... Um, that is where all the you know the major bulk of the wheats and, and the corns are grown. So for these guys that are you know working precisely with crops, if they can save money, if they can not use as much pesticide and herbicide, that's obviously very good for the environment, and uh, it makes huge sense. And so he kind of worked on it, and others have come along, but uh, Robert was one of the first people to actually think, have that light bulb moment with it, but it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I came at this, I was wanting to write about the livestock sector, because obviously, as you can imagine, it's the cropping side of things where all the emphasis is being put, but I'm kind of thinking about it from a, as a livestock man myself, as you know, I, I was formerly, for many years, a livestock farmer, and I'm thinking to myself, in some of these areas where you've got undulating terrain, you've got difficult terrain, you're gathering stock, that you know, these things could be really quite useful out in some of the more challenging uh, country. And even the technology, this is how cool some of this stuff is. Uh, one company is working on a heat-seeking thermometer that fits on your drone that you can fly 100 feet above your cattle and, you know, when you have livestock, you'll see an animal that's perhaps parking from the others and just look, you wonder, is something wrong with it? This thing can take the animal's temperature to within about a few percent of, of being spot on. So you, you can find uh, in the livestock side of things, too, there are applications, things like checking water tanks, water lines. Uh, if you're out in an area where you've got water tanks might be damaged, you want to check they're working. Checking things like um, if you if you're relying on natural water, but it's still there, and also that you've not got any issues with like algae and poisonous stuff like that. So, it, 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 I think it, it has got huge implications. Um, the the legislation they're proposing in so coming back to the sort of the first side of agriculture, which will be the cropping side. And John, I think I'm going to have to. I think I'm going to have to jump in because we are actually just about out of time, and so I can see. Obviously, 
lots more to discuss here. So I think probably yep. warranting, warranting a full show, and maybe it would be interesting to put something together with some of the folks who have been using this technology for sure. We so, sure could. We um, sure could. And uh, just remind people to listen to my show tomorrow because I've got an interesting program coming up which will look into farming on the front line with large carnivores and the impact of predation uh, for uh, livestock farmers. So that's coming up tomorrow, and I uh, encourage people to listen and listen up and get scared by all the big scary stuff. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much. It's been great to have you on. Yeah, a pleasure. Catch you soon. So, uh, again, folks, uh, tune in tomorrow live at 1 o'clock to hear more from John on his latest episode of The Whole Shebang. You can also learn more about his work around UAVs by checking out his article in The Farmer's Guardian. It's farmersguardian.com. If you want to follow the poultry conversation uh, regarding Craig Watts, the poultry farmer for Purdue that I mentioned at the top of the show, you can get more info on that case uh, by checking out foodwhistleblower.org or see his video and learn more about his work through the Compassion in World Farming, which is at ciwf.org. Once again, um, highly recommend checking out the work of Steve Wood, um, his apples at Poverty Lane Orchard, and of course the Farnham Hill Ciders. You can learn more by visiting povertylaneorchards.com. This show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. Um, but I hope you'll visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in our work, please click that Donate tab, become a member today. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.